Welcome to Beef and Forage Roundup with host Chantal McRae. This podcast is a production of Manitoba Beef and Forage Initiatives, created to share information with farmers, producers, and agriculture enthusiasts, and to showcase the important work that is happening at MBFI. Our podcasts drop on the first and third Wednesday of each month. We will be sharing information through interviews, general manager, Mary Jane Orr, project leads for various projects, MBFI team members, speakers from our extension events, industry leaders, and industry suppliers. This podcast will dig deep into on-farm research and field testing practices related to beef cattle and forage production and efficiency and sustainability of practice in the agricultural industry in Manitoba. We will be sharing information on upcoming training and workshops, field and farm demonstration tours, education materials and events at MBFI, as well as producer profiles from around the province and information on their own trials, challenges, innovation, and results. We encourage you to browse our social media accounts and website for links to more information on projects, upcoming events, and important deadlines. Information on our social accounts and website can be found following the show and in the show notes. As always, we encourage you to email us if you have feedback, questions, or topic suggestions for the show at information at mbfi.ca. Dr. Deanne Wilkinson grew up near Oakville, Manitoba on a mixed grain and cow-calf farm. She currently lives north of St. Rose de Lac and farms with her husband and three kids. Together, they calve out approximately 80 purebred Galvi and Balancer or registered Angus Galvi cows and 20 commercial cows and run Galvi, Balancer, and Angus bulls. They have gradually pushed back their calving to early May and calve in a large paddock. They run their cows as one breeding group with multiple bulls and DNA all calves for parentage verification. Dan completed her undergrad at the University of Guelph with two semesters on an exchange to SLU, which is a Swedish agricultural university, and attended veterinary school at the Western College of Veterinary Medicine in Saskatoon, where she graduated in 2012. Since then, she has worked at a mixed animal practice in Russell, Manitoba for three years, followed by six years at a small animal practice in Dauphin, Manitoba, while also running a solo vet mixed animal ambulatory practice at that time. She started with Manitoba Agriculture in 2021 as the extension veterinarian position. She started with Manitoba Agriculture in 2021 in the extension veterinarian position and has been working there since. If Deanne had spare time, she would love to ride her horses and garden again. On this week's episode, we're talking with Manitoba Agriculture Extension Veterinarian, Dr. Deanne Wilkinson. Welcome to the show, Deanne. Thanks for having me. Welcome. Thanks for being here. Before we get into information on overall herd health plans, can you share a little bit about yourself and how you came to work as an extension vet? Yeah, so I grew up on a mixed farm with cattle, sheep and grain near Oakville, Manitoba. I kind of thought I always wanted to do something related to animals. So I ended up going to University of Guelph for my undergrad and then University of Manitoba briefly before attending vet school at the Western College of Veterinary Medicine in Saskatoon. So I graduated there in 2012 and then went into mixed animal practice in Russell, Manitoba for three years. Then I moved to Dauphin area because that's where my spouse was farming and I worked in small animal practice in Dauphin and had my own ambulatory mixed animal practice until I saw an ad for extension vet and applied. So, Awesome. Thank you. 
And what are some of your main duties and responsibilities as the extension vet? It's a really sort of fun role where I get to do a lot of different things and work with a lot of different groups. So I do outreach and extension activities with livestock producer groups would be the obvious one. So just doing talks and articles. And it's taken me outside of my comfort zone a little bit because I get to work with a lot of poultry and swine too that I didn't have a ton of experience with. And then I also do provide extension and outreach for our provincial veterinary lab in Winnipeg, the Veterinary Diagnostic Services. And then I get to also work with our animal health surveillance vet within Manitoba Agriculture when we have some disease outbreak situations. And sort of one of my last random things I get to work with is some programming to deal with the veterinary shortage because it's sort of a hot topic right now. Yeah, for sure. That seems to come up lots in, <laughs> in all kinds of conversations. Yep. Interesting. Let's get into some discussion about herd health planning. So can you broadly run us through the key times and activities producers need to be planning for in order to maintain a healthy and productive herd, kind of from cow-calf to background and weaned calves? For sure. Yeah, there's a lot of steps and it's easy to sort of forget them until they're, it's that time of year. But I'd probably start with pre-calving. Lots of guys will be doing some pre-calving vaccines like scour vaccines. You want to be making sure your cows are in really good body condition. And then at actual calving time, just supporting that newborn, making sure they get lots of colostrum. Lots of people are doing vaccines in those new baby calves, depending on what time of year they're calving. And then at your summer turnout time, that's one of our main vaccinating times. But also people are doing other sort of tidy up chores if they didn't get them done during the newborn time. So you're castrating, any dehorning, maybe some deworming even pre-pasture. Hopefully while they're on pasture, you're not having to do too much, but just sort of the management of pink eye and foot rot, I guess. And then when things are coming in in the fall, I always emphasize the pre-weaning is when you're actually supposed to be doing your your vaccines and stuff to have them really take effect and be helpful. Lots of people probably won't be preg checking until it's almost winter. And that's a time when after, usually after we've weaned their calves, but we'll be assessing that cow herd again, probably doing a lice preventative treatment, maybe some other chores at that time too. And then for when you're backgrounding any of those calves, anything that you're keeping over those pre-weaning vaccines are really what's going to give you optimal health over the winter. But when they're going to be in your yard or grazing the next year, you really have to make sure that you're doing spring vaccines for those guys because they need sort of their one-year booster at that time. Acknowledging that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Proper vaccination is the keystone of herd health plans. This seems to be a topic that in humans is widely controversial. Is the same controversy seen in beef production? I haven't really seen very much controversy with it. These vaccines are pretty well established and we've been using them for quite a while. They might update some of the vaccines just on what some of the newer variants of viruses are, but really we've been using them for decades. And we have an association, the Western Canadian Association of Bovine Practitioners, so that's Western Canada cow vets. And they put together a working group of researchers, veterinarians, people in academia to really discuss what 
core vaccines are and which ones we really need. And probably only came out last year, sort of their their consensus on the core vaccines. And it's what we've been using as core vaccines. And really, it's like an insurance plan that using these vaccines, if you don't use them, you can just have a giant wreck. So I really haven't seen big controversy with it. They're efficacious. It is a hassle, obviously, having to run things through the chute. But it's it's well worth it because saving one or two calves is easily covers the cost of vaccines. Yeah, especially in a market like seems to be today. Yes. Saving one or two calves could make quite a difference. Yeah. Breaking it down, can you tell me about the immune system and what occurs when an animal is given a vaccine? For sure. So the immune system has sort of a few different parts to it. There's sort of a non-specific part that just basic defenses your body has to prevent foreign viruses, bacteria from entering and causing disease. There's no memory to that, though. So if you encounter the same disease down the road, it has to mount the same kind of response. And then we have a more adaptive immune system. And this includes sort of our white blood cells and antibodies or immunoglobulins that develop specifically to different types of pathogens. So a pathogen is a disease-causing agent like a parasite or even a bacteria or a virus. So within that adaptive or specific immune response, they do develop memory, which is really important, and that's how our vaccines work. We have our humoral immune system, which is our antibody one that our vaccines rely on. And then we have one called cell-mediated immunity, and this is where We have specific white blood cells that are going to attack things that they see as foreign. And the cell-mediated immunity also includes all that inflammatory response that makes us look and feel so sick, but does fight disease, so like mucus and fever and stuff like that. So yeah, anytime something foreign enters the body, they, they have little molecules on the outside of them that the body recognizes as foreign, and those are called antigens. And once the body sees an antigen, it signals a big cascade of how to remove that or inactivate that pathogen that's attached to the rest of the antigen. When we use a vaccine, it has those similar antigens on it that they're recognizing as foreign, and they're building up that immune response right to that vaccine then, so that's specific, and then we'll have memory to it hopefully down the road. I'm sure I learned a lot of that stuff in like science class in high school. And then when I was researching it for this episode, I was like, Hey, this is so cool. And apparently I didn't remember any of that. Oh, I know. I always have to refresh myself, (laughs) but it was kind of neat to read it and to rethink about it again. Yeah. There's lots and lots of options for vaccines, which can be a bit overwhelming when you're trying to determine what the best option is for a producer. Can you describe the different types of vaccines and what someone should be looking for when they're comparing different products? There's so many ways you can approach sort of vaccinating your herd. So some of our vaccines are a viral vaccine and their combinations. Some of them include bacterial components. Some are just for bacterial pathogens. So we do have our core vaccines that we're sort of recommending from this working group. And then there's lots of sort of add-ons that you might need to use depending on when you calve, what you see for disease pressure, like some people have horrible pink eye and they might turn into a pink eye vaccine for some help some years. And there's different brands and they all seem to amalgamate and make things confusing. So really talking to your vet to know 
what they recommend and what seems to be more prevalent in your area is really important because it's yeah no one size fits all sort of program. I'm glad you mentioned the different area because that was going to be my next question that I was going to add in was if you're in a different area of the province, is there a good chance you're vaccinating for some different things, just kind of tweaking your program? Definitely you can be. How is vaccination different or similar to exposure to a live infectious pathogen? Well, with the vaccine, you're either taking sort of an inactivated pathogen or just a piece of that actual pathogen is put onto another organism or carrier. So when the vaccine's put into the animal's body, it can't replicate and actually cause like the disease syndrome and the signs. When you have the live pathogen coming in, it's it's going to cause the body to mount a really good immune response, but that pathogen can go along and replicate and start causing disease, which is usually by the time we catch it, it's fairly well progressed. Why is this beneficial to herd health? It's just a form of insurance almost. These bugs are so prevalent. Anytime you bring an animal into your herd, they're just carrying a different type of bacteria and viral load within them. And it's just really hard, hard to protect against everything just through management alone. Management is very, very important. And that same thing where if all you have to do is lose one or two animals and the vaccines have covered themselves. Also, cows are so stoic. Like they are a prey species. They try to mask their signs when they're sick. They're not going to tell you that they're starting to feel a little bit off. So when you catch them, especially if they're on pasture where they're hard to catch, usually the disease is so progressed. You're dealing with now all the mucus, the fever, plus that actual pathogen that's already replicated so many times. So it's really, it's really hard. So prevention is the key, I guess. Would you say that the majority of pathogens would spread in cattle through like their mucus and saliva or are they ones that are in air in droplets or what would the majority kind of be? A lot of them, because we deal with a lot of respiratory pathogens, they are in that mucus or even a cough. So like aerosolized, but when they're sharing water bowls and mucus is going into them, that's a really easy way to share Then there are sort of more of our like scour vaccines that if you have them on your boots, you walk into the vet clinic and some other farmer had scours at home, you can take it home so easily. And I I think about it all the time when I'm going to the post office and I see manure up the steps. I'm like, oh, no, (laughs) this isn't what we need to be doing, (laughs) sharing, sharing too much. It's funny, but it's also not funny. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Can you share some scenarios where falling behind in vaccination resulted in major issues for a herd productivity? We still see blackleg. It's a really old, effective vaccine for a clostridial bug that's found in the soil all the time. And it's very cost-effective. It's not expensive. And just because we kind of don't think it's always there, once people start seeing blackleg in their herd and then they know they have to vaccinate the rest of the herd and treat them, Usually they're going to lose more animals when they do bring them in because of just the way the pro, you know, if animal goes through the chute, bruises itself, that can inactivate any spore that animal had in them. So black leg is, is usually going to be a big herd issue if it pops up. Lots of BVD when it can cause a lot of different things, but if we 
see animals bring it into a naive pregnant herd, you can see abortion storms. And that's just horrible because there's nothing you can do once it starts. And then scour outbreaks, like I'm sure people are very well acquainted with those. And they're hard to even manage with vaccines. You have to really do really good management. But once you start having calves scouring, it's just, it's everywhere. Some of them people can get, so then the families sick too so all of those things are pretty dramatic when they when they actually occur what would you say are the most common infectious diseases in beef cattle in manitoba and in canada and how are livestock exposed to these i think our core viral vaccine so bbd ibr which is a bovine herpes virus brsv which is just like rsv in people all of those They cause other signs, but they're a respiratory viral bug. They're pretty common. Any weaned calves see them when they're going through the auction mart and into feedlots. So they're very common. Those ones, yeah, through mucus, saliva, aerosolized, coughing, easily spread. Clostridial ones like our black leg, we probably don't see as often because producers have been vaccinating for it. And I think it does have a longer immunity. So we're not always vaccinating the cow herd every year, but it isn't a bad idea in some areas or some circumstances. And then I do think that our scour bugs, so E. coli, rota, and coronavirus are pretty common if you're calving wintertime in more closed quarters. And then anytime you're mixing new animals, there's that potential that those new guys bring in just a couple different bugs the herd wasn't used to that expose them. Besides scours, are there others that can be passed to humans? Leptospirosis is one of our abortion agents, and people add it into your cow core viral vaccine if they have an issue in the area. And lots of vets recommend it just to cover their butts and bases because it, you can see an abortion storm with it. And leptospirosis is zoonotic too, so it's um, something that people can catch. Lots of the the viral respiratory ones aren't, so we're lucky with that. So really, I'd probably be watching mostly for lepto, salmonella, E. coli, but also our cryptosporidium, which is one of our, we don't have a vaccine for it, one of our scour bugs. It's a really bad one if people get it, so... Washing your hands and being very clean around those dirty calves is so important. Interesting. What is your herd health plan vaccine protocol recommendation for core coverage versus more comprehensive coverage in breeding stock? So we do have the viral core vaccine that is extremely common to use. And I'll just sort of call it your BVD viral vaccine. So that includes your bovine viral diarrhea bovine herpes virus, para-influenza 3 virus, and bovine respiratory syncytial virus and its core. Lots of clinics probably recommend adding your, in your leptospirosis or even Vibrio, which are two more of your abortion agents into that, depending. Some wildlife can carry lepto and some of these bugs. So even if you're a pretty closed herd, I know some elk in certain parts of Canada, Western Canada, carry lepto. You still want to be covering for it because it can cause an abortion storm. So that's the cow herd, I guess. Did you want to know calves too then? or? Yeah, let's talk about suckling yeah. calves next. Yeah. So our baby calves, 
mom's colostrum has a lot of antibodies in it that's going to bind up your vaccine when you give an injectable vaccine. So for the first eight weeks or so, giving an injectable vaccine isn't very efficacious. But lots of people in the wintertime are still going to see pneumonia and calves go downhill because they're in pens, there's humidity in barns, just that increased disease load. So we have had some intranasal vaccines come out in the last little while that are really good. They don't last as long as an injectable vaccine, but mom's maternal antibodies don't interfere with how that vaccine works and they start working quickly. So our intranasals will go just right up the nose and it works within the immune system, within the sort of head to trap your pathogens before they even enter the lungs and start causing disease there. The intranasal vaccines don't carry BVD though, so that's just one thing to be aware of. So if you do have a lot of mixing of herds, you will want to be vaccinating those calves as soon as you can with BVD even. People that calve later, like we calve more May, we've never really had pneumonia pressure in our calves when they're spread out in the paddock. So we don't give an intranasal. They just have mum's immunity until we do our summer turnout. And even then, some of them are too young, so we're doing an intranasal at summer turnout. They don't get their injectable until coming in in the fall time. But yeah, with those intranasals probably lasting up to three months, so you do need to follow up with an injectable afterwards. And with our baby calves, we do still do the clostridial vaccine because it's very cheap. It can help a little bit with some some certain diarrheas, and it does seem to work a little bit in those baby calves. So that's one I don't hesitate to use whenever. And then moving into weaned calves, what would you be offering them? So these guys, giving a vaccine right at weaning when they're stressed out because of leaving mom and food change and stuff, you're going to have your weakest immune response to that vaccine. So I know it's really, really challenging to actually do it pre-weaning, but pre-weaning, if you get a vaccine into them a few weeks before that stressful period, they have that memory to respond to pathogens and amount, mount an immune response right away before disease really sets in. So I always promote pre-weaning. You're going to give your BVD viral combo one, and then lots of producers will add in a bacterial pneumonia component. So sometimes that's a combined one injection, and then your clostridial vaccine to so your black leg. And there's often bacterial pneumonia component that can be added onto that clostridial vaccines. There's sort of three main bacterial pneumonias we do see, so you can almost get them all together in a combination for those pre-weaning calves. And then our last group would be yearlings. So what would you be giving them? Same thing sort of as the cow herd. I don't, we're not worrying about abortion agents. So you don't have to add in sort of your lepto and those things, but we want our BVD, our core viral vaccine. Big one is clostridial vaccines. Like I've seen two-year-old bulls die of black leg because they didn't get their booster in the springtime. So it's so important to remember your bulls and those yearlings going out to pasture because you put a lot of time and feed into them to, to background them and sell them as grassers. You want to just use that clostridial vaccine. I have had some bacterial pneumonias pop up occasionally, even in 
in some of our older yearling animals or two-year-olds. So sometimes you might have to add in the BVD that has bacterial pneumonia in it too, just depending. You might bring in an animal that has carrier for something like pasteurella or manheimia. So you just have to watch out and add in some of those ones if you see issues. And would that change at all if you were, say, buying a whole load of yearlings? Probably, yeah. If I was buying a bunch from the auction mart, I would probably still add in my bacterial pneumonias, just do a little bit more coverage. Yeah, if you're buying in whole semi-loads from the same source, doing your core with your clostridial is probably going to cover you the best. But yeah, definitely more when they're auction sourced. And what are different types of vaccines? And what are the advantages and disadvantages of using live vaccines? So yeah, we have some killed vaccines. So all of our clostridial ones are killed. The killed vaccine, the pathogen's been inactivated, so it won't replicate. And it's in an adjuvant. And that adjuvant actually sort of is what stimulates the immune system. So these guys, we usually will see slightly bigger injection site reactions if you're going to see anything. So our scour vaccines, we'll see some swelling, sometimes our black leg ones too. So it's just something to be aware of. The killed vaccines, probably, they don't mount quite as strong an immune response as the modified live ones, but they're safe to give in pregnant animals. So especially if you're buying in bred cows and you don't know for sure, you even just want to make sure they had their coverage, using a killed BVD combo vaccine is uh, a really great idea because it's safe to use in them. And then our modified live vaccines, so they've been modified, so they, they don't cause disease. So sometimes it's even just a portion of that pathogen is placed onto another molecule. So the whole bug isn't even in the vaccine. And then the body can recognize that bug still. They're usually mixed a powder in a diluent. So once you mix them, you have to use them up kind of within two hours. But they do mount a slightly stronger immune response. And if the cows, if you don't know the history and they're pregnant... You don't want to be using live vaccine in them for the first time when they're pregnant. They are safe to use in pregnant animals if they've been boosted properly, but I'm always hesitant to do that. I do have a few producers that have been boosting their herd very well all the time, and now they're on a program where they're doing the live vaccine pre-calving, but that's because those cows have encountered that vaccine before, and then it won't cause abortion. And if you're bringing in, say, bred cows, and they've already been vaccinated. Can you over-vaccinate if you vaccinate them again? I've never seen any reactions or, or issues with it. And I'm more of a cautious person. I'm always worried, like, maybe someone handled a vaccine wrong or, you know, they're probably covered if you, if you trust where you source them from. And it's always important with any species when you're buying them to actually, when they say fully vaccinated, to clarify because... Sometimes that means they got one vaccine when they were six months old. Actually, a lot of times, we eat a lot of species. No, they need yearly boosters. <laughs> yeah. What items are important to ensure you know prior to administering a vaccine? So important to know the dose because the brands all are a little bit different and the root. Like, most of the BVD vaccines are sub-Q and there's a few that are intramuscular. And I, I read the label every time because I'm using lots of different products and trying different combinations. So I'm always double-checking. 
lots of our modified lives are two mils per dose, but some are five. So you just have to check all the time. And I guess I don't think about it too often, but sometimes you might have to salvage slaughter something down the road. So just knowing that your meat withdrawal times for your vaccines when those are two, but mostly that dose and, and where you're giving it are important. And what would you say might cause vaccines to fail? Probably improper handling. I think people are getting a lot better. There's really awesome coolers you can use to to keep everything and make it easy. But I think it's easy to freeze vaccines uh, if you're placing them right on ice packs in a cooler. And some of the days we're working on are just so extremely hot. So not leaving them out on a table in the sun, even just finding some shade and making sure you're only mixing up enough that you're going to be able to use before it starts to warm up or something. Watching the expiration date is important too. Sometimes I see cows going through the chute so quickly and vaccines going in and out of them. So just making sure you're actually taking the time to actually inject them properly. But And I think a lot of times though, we think our vaccines don't work when really the disease pressure is just way too high. It doesn't matter how perfect your medication and your vaccine program is, if you are mixing cows from different sources all the time, they're in close quarters, they're in barns and sheds with humidity, and they don't have a good nutrition status, it doesn't matter how good your vaccines are, they're not going to be able to work because that immune system isn't strong enough. So I think management is probably our number one issue for a vaccine failure. What considerations are needed when people are handling and administering vaccines? Temperature, which I mentioned before, even what you're storing them in, like so many of our little fridges will freeze at the back. The door of the fridge is actually too warm. Like lots of things you you learn when you have families and babies and where you put milk in the fridge is important. Don't put stuff in the doors. Having a, a thermometer in the fridge can give you a good idea. You might move it around and realize, though this shelf is is at zero or lower, don't put my vaccine here. Sometimes I'll even wrap things in a little bit of bubble wrap just to make sure that they're just a little more protected from any temperature change. Knowing that your modified live vaccines are only really good for two hours after you mix them. If you're going slowly or something happens or you have to do other things while you're vaccinating, maybe you have to mix up 10-dose bottles instead of 50-dose bottles. And then, yeah, just making sure that you're giving it in the right spot, you know, making sure it's going sub-Q, not through the skin and down their neck. Those things are important. And can you explain the options for injectable versus intranasal vaccines and why intranasal might be beneficial? And you've already kind of shared a bit about it, but if there's anything else you want to share? For sure. Yeah. So those intranasals, they're working locally within the respiratory upper respiratory tract. They can be used in any age of animals. So maternal antibodies and colostrum don't interfere with how they work. And I, they do start acting more quickly. So even in an older animal where maybe you're having a pneumonia outbreak in a pen of weaned calves or something, it might be an option. You can do intranasal. They're getting that quicker immune response right away, but it, it doesn't last as long as an injectable. So looking more at maximum of three months, and then you would want to be thinking about boostering. And then the injectable, other than a black leg vaccine, which I would give sort of any time, I wouldn't use an injectable vaccine in less than eight weeks. Like if you have to do six weeks, maybe if it's only a couple calves, but 
if the majority of your pen was all six weeks, just intranasal them. You're paying for the vaccine, you want it to work, and you might as well, you, if, even if it's a little harder to administer or wrangle them, it's better to use the one that's going to help you. If you're putting the time and the money into it, you might as well be getting the most out of it. Going back for a second to the different stages in livestock production and the key times for vaccination, what kinds of antibodies or protection are passed to calves in colostrum? Well, the the maternal antibodies in colostrum are going to be antibodies that are floating around your cow's immune system. So anything you've exposed that cow to, whether it's been a natural infection or vaccinations, that is what the calf is going to get. So that's sort of why colostrum from their own mom is the most important because it has sort of the profile of the bugs that are in your herd, on your land, in your area. And that's why the cow herd being vaccinated properly is going to give that baby the best, best start. And it's the same with the idea of our scour vaccines. We have to be giving them the scour vaccines so they're producing antibodies to it at the right time so that they're depositing those antibodies into the colostrum. If you're vaccinating too late, it doesn't have time to get into the colostrum. And that colostrum is what the calf is going to get it all from. And you've kind of talked about this a little bit already too, but why is vaccinating calves important and how significant is the timing? Their immune system is just developing. So it's not as complete. It hasn't seen as many bugs as the cow herd. And they're going through a lot of stressors. So weaning, weather changes, they're going to be adapting to it. It's all just a little bit harder on them. So having a vaccine to help protect them during those times is so important. And probably, I guess, the timing with it, if we're talking about weaning, because it takes a few weeks to mount an immune response to a vaccine, doing it pre-weaning is really important because the body's just too stressed right at weaning time to respond really well to a vaccine. And they're, they're getting infected at weaning time when they're mixing and mingling so it's too late. If the vaccine is kicking in two weeks later, they've already got the disease replicating in them. What risks should we be thinking about when we're vaccinating pregnant or lactating cows? As far as I, I'm aware, just that vaccinating that pregnant cow with a modified live vaccine does pose a risk to, to abortion if they've uh, never encountered that vaccine before. And you do have to think about vaccinating, like at spring turnout, if you're vaccinating calves with a modified live, they could be sort of shedding a little bit of that vaccine in their secretions, I guess. So if that mom is already bred and her still nursing baby is giving off some live vaccine and that mom has never had that vaccine before, they're still potentially getting exposed to it. So you have to sort of think about that. But once they've been on a vaccine program for a year, they've they're pretty safe. So just using that killed vaccine, if if it's a totally naive herd the first year is really important for everyone. And we've talked lots about weaning already. So there might be more you want to add in here, but if not, that's okay. Weaning can be one of the most stressful times. So how can we set our calves up for the best success in backgrounding? Oh, for sure. I guess the other things like I love talking about the management aspects about it trying to make weaning as less stressful as possible is so important. So doing it at a two-stage weaning, whether you're putting in nose tags or whether you're doing fence line weaning, those can make it less stressful. 
getting them accustomed to bunks, the watering system, just pens, making everything new seem a little less new and shocking to them is so important. And, you know, getting them on creep feed helps them adjust to feed changes. So if you can separate that, taking mom away from the actual food change into sort of two separate events, it's going to be way less stressful. And then not having to do a whole bunch of things like castrating and dehorning at weaning, their their body is just going to be much more relaxed and able to respond to any disease pressure. And I guess, too, making sure that their nutrition status, you know, they're not coming off a pasture wormy or really low on some nutrients if it was a tough year. Pulling them in early if you ran out of grass is so important because they have such high nutrient requirements when they're growing. And it's good to add in that management part too. And that rolls really nicely into the next question, which is what other management measures are required to provide protection to your herd? Nutrition is always like my key. Anytime I have an issue in my own herd, the first thing I'm like, what are we missing? What, you know, what do we need to feed test? And also space crowding them is just going to cause so much more disease pressure. So if you can spread things out, you spread out the disease load. If you can get them a really good nutritional base, they have a great ability to adapt and fight disease. And then just dealing with mother nature, being able to adapt when the weather is not what we want it to be. And that's one of the hardest things because, you know, you have your your corrals and your fencing set up a certain way. But if you can pivot, if you can develop novel ways of dealing with that weather that season and spreading them out, but keeping them protected from the elements a little bit, those are really important. Especially with the weather that we've had in the last few years (laughs) where it's been dry and then it's hot and then it's too wet and it's cold and it's snowing in the spring and yeah, it is. It's so hard to predict. So just having some backup plans, I guess that that's important. How would you define a closed herd? And what does having a closed herd change as far as vaccine recommendations? I'm still always going to recommend the core, the core vaccines, because I think beef animals are not raised in a production system like a pig or a chicken that are much more able to close them. And even then they're not closed because birds and rodents can get into those barns. They try very hard not to. So I don't even really consider a beef animal a closed herd. Anytime they have contact with wildlife, there are those few bugs that wildlife carry. Um, Lepto's kind of sort of the main one I can think of, but you can't keep wildlife out of your pastures. And anytime you're bringing in a bull, unless you're raising all your own bulls, all your own replacement females, you're bringing animals in. And if you go to the post office, even you are bringing bugs in. So it's, it's almost impossible to make it closed. So I would just always use the core vaccines. And then if you have a lot of exposure to different animals, that's when you add in your risk-based ones. And I hadn't really thought about the, like the wildlife aspect of it. But yeah, even if your herd isn't having a whole lot of animals moving in and out, whether you have deer or elk, like you said, makes a big difference. There is ongoing discussion in beef marketing about avoiding the use of vaccines, antibiotics, et cetera. How safe is meat consumption after the withdrawal period has passed? And can you explain any potential differences between eating meat from an animal who's had regular vaccine programming? and our past withdrawal dates compared to meat from animals who have not had vaccinations 
and may have had exposure or recovery from illness? I haven't heard a lot of avoiding the use of vaccines in, I guess, in maybe in some of the really holistic systems. Lots of avoiding use of antibiotics, but I do trust our food safety health system. And when withdrawal times are followed, then I have a very high level of confidence that the residues in the animal, in the meat, are below levels that would cause any issue in humans. That just does make sure, though, that we're giving things by the proper dose and the proper route, because if you don't follow them, that does change your meat withdrawal times. But when they develop the withdrawal times, they have to do so much research and prove that they're within safe limits, and they even factor in safety margins to things too when they're establishing these safety limits. So I don't really know if there's, I wouldn't say there's a difference really between an animal that's been infected versus vaccinated because they're still making antibodies. And I don't think that vaccine is really in the animal in that sense when you follow withdrawal time. And is there anything else about vaccine protocol or handling that you want to share before we wrap up today? Speaking to your vet to make it less complicated, write out your plan and make sure you keep your records because it's so important and it's hard to remember when you change something, what are you doing next? Actually, even having a schedule of what's next on the calendar, we're going to do this, make sure you have it ordered in in time. Pre-planning is important, but then other than the actual vaccines themselves, just Getting your nutrition and your management practices up to snuff are really going to help your herd health. And I like that idea of having it written on the calendar because like for us with our herd, there's so many times that we're like, oh, we need to be doing this in two weeks. And all of a sudden it's like, we got to order it and somebody's got to go pick it up and we've got to make sure we have help to get the cows in. And it's just easier, you know, a ways in advance. Yeah. If the more you can schedule the the better, because there's going to be curveballs regardless. Yeah. Where can people go if they want more information? People have more questions. I'd always look at contacting their their herd veterinarian because they're going to have the best idea. Mm-hmm. But sometimes we do have more broad questions or herd outbreak situations and emailing or phoning the chief veterinary office. So that's chiefveterinaryoffice at gov.mb.ca or phoning 204-945-7663. They can either direct you because our animal health surveillance vet does do some investigations or support definitely to other vets in situations that are out of control, I guess. Perfect. And I'll add both those, the email yep. and the phone number into the show notes as well. Perfect. So if people miss that, they can find those there. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast and taking some time to talk to us about vaccine protocol. Thanks too for having me because I, I enjoy talking about it because I, I do think it's such an important thing and people see it as a hassle, but it's, it really pays off in the long run. Yeah, there's a lot of benefits to it. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Beef and Forage Roundup. For more information on the research projects or upcoming extension events, please visit us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at MB Beef and Forage. For full project reports, and more information about MBFI, please visit our website, mbfi.ca. If you have feedback on the show, questions about content, 
are interested in becoming a project partner or contributor, or want to submit a proposal for a research project topic, please email information at mbfi.ca. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe to ensure you don't miss an upcoming episode. The research programs and daily operations at MBFI would not be possible without funding from the province of Manitoba, Government of Canada, and the Sustainable Canadian Agricultural Partnership, as well as partnership with Manitoba Agriculture, Manitoba Beef Producers, and Ducks Unlimited Canada.